Earl Baum was born in 1896 on his family farm just west of Santa Rosa, California. He helped his family tend to animals and harvest the seasonal crops. And as time passed, Earl remained, tilling, cultivating, and taking care of the land. Earl spent 90 years on that farm until his death in 1986. And even in his old age, it was Earl alone who ran that farm. Oh, and one other small detail. Earl Baum completely lost his vision at age 17. James Earl Baum lived in this house until he died in 1986 at the age of 94. He had some eyesight till his teenage years, though he was legally blind even then. He's farmed the place since his father died. It takes him a little longer than some. Earl has the place wired. It's how he gets around, guiding himself along sections of baling wire that he's strung from point to point around the farm. No cane and no guide dog. Just some thin wire strung between points on the farm that Earl would hold to know where he was. And today, the wire still remains, connecting the dots around the farm, a rusted over reminder of the legacy Earl left. Blind for 80 years, he wanted his homestead to be used as a resource center for the visually impaired. I've dedicated my life to do whatever I can to help the blind. I want the whole scene to go to them, and make it a regular uh, recreation ground, a park like, you know. I think the blind can help each other more uh, by being together uh, than uh, being with sighted people. And after 14 years of planning, that center became a reality the Earl Baum Center. When I arrived at the Earl Baum Center for the first time, I was trying to look professional. I had my polo shirt with the Stanford logo paired with some nicely creased slacks. I had my microphone kit slung over my shoulder in a messenger bag because, well, that's how I envisioned all the pro journalists doing it. Pretty smooth, right? But let's back up for a second. The reason I came to the Aerobaum Center in the first place was because of an event I had heard about. I heard about a day when visually impaired members of the Aerobaum Center venture into downtown Santa Rosa to test the crosswalk signs a group walking together to make sure the signals are loud enough and safe. When I heard about this event, I thought, cool. I thought about how great a photograph that would be. So I took the next logical step and contacted the center's CEO, drew up grant money proposals, and organized my summer around telling the story of the Earl Baum Center. It wasn't until I stood face to face with the CEO of the Earl Baum Center me with my polo, slacks, and clicky pen tucked behind my ear, him with his guide dog and dark sunglasses, that I realized it wasn't until I stuck out my hand for a handshake and he just offered a friendly, unknowing smile in return that I realized, Austin, you have no idea what the hell you are doing. <laughs> Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's try that musical interlude again. Austin, you have no idea what the hell 
you are doing. That's more like it. But let me be clear. I wasn't scared due to my lack of preparation. By the time you finish high school, pretty much everyone has become desensitized to the fear of not being prepared for an assignment. I was scared of the visually impaired people. I was entering a world I didn't belong in, a world without full vision. A world and a way of life that I couldn't imagine. I don't have any blind friends. I didn't know the first thing about what their lives were like. I was just scared I would offend with a dumb question, that I would seem insensitive or ignorant. I was worried about the smallest things. How will I email clients to set up interviews if they can't see the computer screen? Should I not greet people with a handshake after the CEO mess up? Do I open the door for them or is that considered disdainful? I just wanted to try and be a friend, connect and hear some stories, but that's tough to do when you're scared of the CEO, scared of the guy getting off the paratransit, and even scared of the petite old lady at the office front door. When I arrived on that first day, there was one activity on the agenda, a tour, just to get to know the place. Walking into the front office where the tour began, a petite and blind elderly lady came to the door. I said, let me get that for you. She laughed off my offer. Oh no, I got it, she said. I scanned my surroundings for any skeptical onlookers. None, thank God. See, that is what I was scared of. Those little moments where two worlds clash with that awkward tension of a misunderstanding. I just hoped I wouldn't run into the old lady again and I could just get on with the tour. But as I walked into the front office to join the group, guess who was leading that tour? I'm Karen Brown. Um, I've been, I'm a regular out here. I've been coming, uh, oh, uh, I would say three or four years now. I, Meet I Sharon Brown a small elderly lady with wavy white hair. Sharon carries a thin white cane with a plastic type ball at the end, making wide arcs along the pavement to guide her and our tour group around the Earlbaum Center. Okay, this is our gym. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday from 9, 9 uh, 45 to 10.45, we have exercise. We start with stretch exercises. You can hear it in her voice. Sharon has the cordial personality of any experienced tour guide. This chipper energy. But as I learned, this wasn't just another in a long line of tours for Sharon. We have some ladies and we have a gentleman here. That's right. Got two gentlemen. Uh-huh. Well, this is my first time on a real tour. And I thought I was scared to show up to the center for this tour. Hey, Austin, try leading your first tour blind and then see how nervous you are. This is great. I've been practicing at this for a long time. Oh, that's why you're so good. You know, um, I've been practicing it with my mobility lessons, hoping that I could do a tour one of these days. The tour not only introduced me to the gym, multi-purpose room, and classrooms, it also introduced me to Sharon, my first real glimpse into a world of darkness.
Tour Stop Number One, A First Glimpse. Before Sharon was leading her first tour, and before she arrived at the Earl Baum Center, Sharon grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Were you born blind? Yes. My eye nerves didn't develop. Really? But I don't worry about that. But growing up, what Sharon did have to worry about was school. Well, I went to a residential school where I lived in a dormitory. Um, it was in Ogden. Uh, they taught me to read and write in Braille and uh, things like that, and a little housekeeping uh, chores, you know, just and how to take care of myself there. As I was uh, growing up, you know, and the teachers at the school, uh, they aren't like the ones here at Earl Baum. They, they were kind of frustrated with me because I didn't learn as fast as they thought I should learn. You learn what kind of stuff? Oh, making beds and, and uh, different things, you know, that are important. And uh, they just, I don't know, they keep... They, they, I was too slow, I guess, and they just felt that uh, they only took me so far, and then they d decided that I was retarded, so I didn't go any further than that. And, and with me, it kind of made me, you know, uh, everybody thought I was stupid, you know. Why can't you learn? So Sharon left school and returned home to live with her mother. But at home, the frustrations continued. What, what was kind of the biggest obstacle maybe at home? Oh, um, my mother, you know, she always wanted to do things for me. I guess that's probably part of my problem because I'd want to try to do it myself. And she, got, she usually got frustrated and said, Sharon and her damned independence. Sharon stayed in Utah with her mother until she was married in 1976. After marriage, Sharon and her husband moved out west. In 2002, after the passing of her husband, Sharon was informed of the Earl Baum Center and has been learning and even working as an assistant there ever since. For Sharon, the Earl Baum Center was the first school where she could learn in a patient environment. It was the first school that really challenged her. So it was part of the great thing about being at the Earl Baum Center is that they challenge you to do things yourself that yes. maybe other people wouldn't. Yeah, that right. It's it's it, yeah. There is challenges even with the cane travel. There's challenges, you know. Um, and um, I need that was a challenge to do the the tour, and I met it. I wanted to do it. You know, it was one of my goals. And I met it. And when asked whether she was nervous about giving that first tour, trying to meet that goal, Sharon said, No. I didn't. Did I seem nervous? <laughs> no, I don't think. No, you didn't seem nervous. But sometimes when I'm doing something From talking to Sharon, it seemed that the turning point in her personal independence was when she started taking on challenges for herself. When people like myself, when I opened the door for her, stopped assuming she needed help when people stopped pitying her. Does it, does it kind of frustrate you when people maybe offer to help when you don't need it? Yeah, it does, because 
if I, I would rather people uh, ask if I, if I, I will tell people if I need some help, because there's no shame in, in, in asking for, for help, you know, but I would rather people uh, let me ask them for help than, than just uh, go ahead and, and, and help, you know, because uh, it helps me to do what do for myself. Family members need to, um, and friends need to um, let the blind person do what they can on their own, and if they need your help, they'll ask. Don't just assume they need the help. The same feeling that I had when I arrived at the Earl Bomb Center, well, that was being described in front of my eyes. The feeling of a gap in communication. The feeling of two worlds separated by vision and the feeling of a fear that could be easily avoided. Uh, a lot of times, a sighted world do, uh, you know, a lot of sighted people don't understand what the blind community is all about. They need to come out here and find out. Do you think that maybe they're nervous to ask? Yeah, I, well, that could be part of it. I don't know, they just, Maybe afraid, yeah. and I don't, I don't, I don't know why they would have to be afraid. Well, for me, for me coming out here, um, kind of, I I realize that, for example, you and I have completely different worlds, and so it's hard for me to, and I'm I'm trying to do it, is to kind of enter the. The world in which I don't under, I don't understand. Right. Well, they, well, you're making a good start by talking to somebody. You know, you can't learn anything unless you ask somebody who's going through the problem. I yeah. would I would I would encourage people to come out here and and talk to people that are blind and learn. You can't learn unless you ask. So I continued to ask to hear stories about people's experiences and how they arrived at the Earl Bomb Center and about what it's like to be blind, and then what it is like to be a college student just like me and suddenly go blind. Tour stop number two, a reflection of me. Uh, right after high school, I went to UC Riverside. This is Scott Murray, a 27-year-old alumni of the Earl Baum Center who I Skyped while he was visiting his family in Oklahoma. Um, I was there working on the electrical engineering degree, um, and then I got in the skateboarding accident, which kind of diverted everything. Can you walk me through that day a little bit? Yeah, um, what I can remember of it, um, you know, uh, from what I was told, because um, basically that day and probably a few months before that, I really don't remember much at all. Um, uh, but that day, 
Uh, I was apparently partying with my friends. I was drinking and smoking weed and uh, made the unfortunate decision of going out and skateboarding. And uh, when we skateboarded, we usually, it was called bombing hills. And uh, we basically go to the top of a pretty steep hill and skateboard down. And I had done it many, many times before, but this was just apparently not my night. Um, you know, uh, the skateboard got stuck on a rock or something, and I fell off and hit my head on the curb. Wow. And uh, then I was in a coma for a month. And when Scott woke up, he had lost almost all his vision. My right eye is completely blind. Um, you know, there's no light perception or anything if I put my hand over it. I don't see anything. Um, and then in my left eye, I have about uh, 25% of the vision in that eye. Um, and it's mostly peripheral. But even with this evidence, waking up to a world of almost complete darkness, Scott was in denial. What was your reaction when you realized you were blind? Uh, probably in denial at first. Um, uh, probably a, a lot of denial. A lot of denial. No, this didn't happen to me. And it's just uh, a temporary thing. And I'll come out of it. And even after months of rehab, even after agreeing to come to the Earl Bomb Center, Scott just couldn't believe it. When you, you first started going to the Earl Bomb Center, what was that like? That was, um, that was the first time I'd really been around um, a whole bunch of blind people. So at first, you know, at first I was probably kind of like, oh, I'm not like them and all this stuff. But, you know, when it came down to it, I obviously was. But at first there was a little bit of resentment about it. What, what did you perceive other people as? that you were not what well, uh blind so you because were... you know it was still still pretty new to me being blind so um i i probably hadn't fully accepted the fact that i was blind so how did that change things once you finally accepted it um it made things better um because now um after that I had become willing to learn, to learn all these new things about being blind, um, which were things that I definitely needed to learn in order to survive. Scott started learning small tasks of independence, how to use technology with a screen reader for a computer. He learned how to cook, how to clean, and then he even learned a new language. And then I think I began Braille, which is, wow. <laughs> it is rough, man. It is rough. It is a new language. You know, first first we started out with just the letters, and then we did the numbers, and then we started doing some small words. And then there's all these, like, kind of like abbreviations in Braille. Like, if you just see the letter T printed, it means the word the. Huh. And there are an endless, endless amount of, of those. Accepting his blindness and having the willingness to learn from the Earl Baum Center, Scott started to get his independence back. 
which hadn't been there since the skateboard accident. But similar to Sharon, just because he was independent didn't mean those in the seeing world viewed him as independent. What's like some, what, can you remember a time or a moment that someone did that or something that your family did that you're like, come on, you know, like I, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was staying with my grandparents recently, and they don't let me do a damn thing in the kitchen. Like that's that's the danger zone for me. And I'm like, you do realize that I lived alone for three years, and somehow I survived and managed to make meals. You do realize that, right? I can do things. So we're still working on that. Still working on it. But the uh, the funniest one was somebody I was talking to who I just recently met, and uh, we informed them that I had the vision problem and whatnot. So what she does is she proceeds to start screaming in my ear as if I'm deaf. As if I was deaf. That was the most ridiculous thing anyone has ever done to me. <laughs> The biggest misconception is that we can't do anything. You know, um, even some of my family members still at this point, they, they think that I like have no arms or something. It's, it's, it's pathetic. Um, you know, there's particular ways that blind people have to do things that are much different than the way that uh, visual um, people with vision can do things. We're happy people just like everybody else. It's just that we do things different. You know, We can do all the same things. Well, mostly. <laughs> Not all of it, I guess. Um, but most of the same things that you sighted people can do. Um, you know, there's just special... There's little techniques uh, involved, and you know a lot of them uh, involve uh, hearing. You know we hear a lot better, which is definitely true. Um, and a lot of them involve uh, tactile skills. You know we're we're touching stuff and we're feeling stuff, whether it's with our hands or even with our feet. You know, all you have to do is learn those things. But I'd say that the biggest misconception is that we're helpless. We're not. We're not. We're, we're happy people just living our lives, just like you, you know? When I started out my conversation with Scott, I felt bad for him. I didn't view him as helpless or someone that couldn't do anything. I learned from Sharon that wasn't the case. I, I just felt sad. I mean, Scott, five years ago, that's me. That's, that's me now. 20-something college kid going after a degree with 100% of his vision. And now, look at him. He's not that. I wondered whether he envied me, if through me he saw a younger version of himself that he wished he could warn. But after talking with Scott, I realized that wasn't the case. He didn't have regrets. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. He's dealing with life, just like me. See, when I first met Scott, I thought we were worlds apart. But after our talk about college football, learning a foreign language, cooking, and being one year from an undergraduate degree, I realized 
As Dr. Evil put it in Austin Powers, we're not so different, you and I. Except maybe for one small thing. Is there anything that, that you miss being able to do? Because you said you could do almost everything. Is there something that you were like, yeah, if I had you know, full vision back for... Drive. What was that? Drive. I used to love driving. I used to love it. And that's, uh, that's a big thing to get used to. You know, always riding in the car with somebody. Tour stop number three, a role model. This is the this is our famous house here. Is it locked? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it is locked. Here, let me let me see for you. Oh yeah. No, there it is. Well, there we you can go. open it for a while. Well, this is this is the house where Denise works. She's a teacher here, and uh, she teaches uh, living skills in this in this house. She teaches some braille and teaches people how to cook. Sharon's tour wasn't the only time I heard Denise's name during my time at the Earlbaum Center. In the month I was going there, I talked to a lot of clients. And as they told me their stories of the awesomeness that was the Earlbaum Center, there was one name I always heard mentioned. Denise. My name is Denise Renee Vansel, and I am the Vision Rehabilitation Therapist here at the Earlbaum Center. I have been working here since the uh, center opened. I was the first instructor to be hired, and so it's been just over 12 years. Denise teaches living skills to the visually impaired, like folding laundry and towels and counting money. Basic skills needed to be independent. And one of the reasons Denise has been such an influential teacher to so many of the clients I talk to is that she can relate to them. She knows what it is like to learn these essential living skills for the second time in one life. Uh, I ha I'm a very rare case. I was born with a um, condition called persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous. <laughs> and it took me a long time just to be able to say it. <laughs> but anyway, um, my parents didn't know I had any vision problems until I began kindergarten. And then my but when teacher the teacher had to keep moving Denise closer and closer to the board during class, a long lifetime of eye doctor appointments began. They discovered that I had this um, rare condition that happens to something like one in 10 million people in both eyes. The vitreous, or the middle part of her eye, was hard when it was supposed to be a jelly-like consistency. But because Denise's wasn't, she developed cataracts at age 10. Back then, cataract surgery wasn't a standard in-and-out procedure. After surgery, complications arose, and Denise's retina, the part at the back of the eye, came apart. And a couple years after, the other retina in her other eye detached. By age 13, Denise was completely blind.
Having experienced vision loss herself, Denise is not only a teacher for clients at the Aerobomb Center, but also a role model. What are some of kind of the reactions you get from people when they start these classes? Do you do you kind of like the sense you get of like teaching them skills that maybe they haven't learned before in their lives that make it so much easier for them? Um, a lot of times in these classes, I feel like one of my biggest duties is to try and be a role model for people because a lot of times vision is, you know, 70% of perception. And so when people start losing their vision, it kind of means their world comes crashing in. They don't know that there's a way to enjoy life a lot of times without having vision. And, you know, none of us do unless it happens to us firsthand or unless we've encountered someone in our lives who has lost vision. And so to come out here and to meet people who are quote-unquote normal and friendly and happy and living life who are in the same or similar situations is a big, you know, eye-opening experience, so to speak, because they learn first that they're not alone. And then they learn, you know, from a teacher who has no vision, who, you know, has traveled extensively throughout the world, who's living a basic normal life of, you know, marriage and kids and and all the things that go with a a busy life of having kids, um, that they, their reaction is, is that, you know, life is still good and that things are possible. And so once they've, you know, kind of learned through each class, they're building on their skills and starting to come out of that feeling that um, hopeless feeling. Denise not only gives her students the skills for basic living, but she also gives them an inspirational story. The story of her own life. A story about appreciating what life has to offer. Vision. So by, you know, 12, almost 13 years old, um, I had no vision. But I really am grateful and thankful to have had vision because I vividly remember what color is and not just what color is, but how color has different shades and basically what everything looks like. You know, I was uh, young and I was a girl, so I didn't pay attention to like different types of cars, but I still remember what cars overall look like, you know, and that there was difference between trucks and vans and cars and remember the green of grass and trees and you know the beauty of flowers and the beauty of the colors of sunsets and so when someone describes that verbally I feel like I have a real good image visually in my mind from having had seen it before if I'm walking down the street or walking downtown you know I 
um, kind of visualize that I'm passing houses and I know I'm passing trees because I always kind of encounter the leaves or shrubbery on each side of me. And when I'm in the downtown area, I know I'm passing businesses. And so I kind of imagine the the buildings not in a detailed way but you know imagine that there's buildings and you know some of the eateries have seating outside and so I kind of envision all of that but in kind of a real vague overall way rather than you know detailed since I don't know the exact Denise gives her students a story of adventure she gives her students her own personal story of how she has seen the world even without vision. Denise has been all over. She has taken her passion for dance around the world and back. She has studied flamenco in Sevilla, Spain, and ventured to Cuba to learn their Latin American dances. Now, she has even brought this passion for dance back to the Earl Baum Center, where she teaches a tap dance class. And I think tap is like the perfect dance for someone who's visually impaired because once you learn the basic vocabulary, you can um, do it all because it's auditory with the sounds of the taps on the shoes. So it's, it's good fun, it's good exercise, it's social, and it's a way to work on balance and spatial awareness. And uh, it's being part of a team when we start working on routines. It's like making music with your feet. It's a lot of fun. I love doing it, and I love teaching. Denise has traveled to Central and South America as a sort of U.S. ambassador for the blind. When she heard about a school for blind children in the small town of Santa Lucia, Honduras, that didn't have proper teachers, she went there and taught. And in teaching there, she was exposed to conditions for the blind in other parts of the world. Directly is how they differ is people make do with what they have in their environment. So in this little teeny town of Santa Lucia, there's only one road and everything else is bumpy, rocky, hilly, unpaved areas. And so a regular standard folding cane really isn't that appropriate to use in that area. And so they made kind of almost wood-like dowels or, or things that you would use to hang in your closet almost as their canes. And they happened to paint them white so that they were clearly a blind um, use cane. But those worked better in the rocky areas that you know, they were living in. She traveled to Mexico and witnessed the conditions for blind there. Um, in Mexico, one time I met a guy who was using a cane that he handmade out of rebarb. And it would stick into everything. And he was moving slowly, but he was getting around. He was still managing to get around town. And so I just handed him, because I was carrying a bunch of different canes with me and handed him and showed him one of the folding canes that have the elastic in it um, to to straighten together and uh, he was very moved he kept saying oh que moderno and you know how modern how wonderful and just very very excited to receive this cane so um, so our our countries are blending together and um, some of them are 
are able to receive some of the things that we have. But I think, you know, we have the laws, we have the auditory signals, we have a lot of the equipment available, even though a lot of it still is quite costly and not everyone has it. But um, what people do in underdeveloped countries is, you know, still kind of band together and learn from each other and make do with what they have and, um, you know, every now and then get... And Denise also gives her students the inspirational story of having a normal and beautiful family. Denise met her husband when he was a client at the Earlbaum Center, and since then has gotten married and had two children, a six-year-old son named Devin and a three-year-old daughter named Sophia. If you could have full vision back, what would be the one thing that you wish you could see again? Well, you know, there's so many wonderful, beautiful things in the world to see and to have it for a day or whatever would be too short of time to travel around the world, so to speak. So I think that I would um, just be thrilled to see my uh, family, my two beautiful children that I know are beautiful and wonderful and I feel like I really do see them because I remember what blonde hair looks like and blue eyes look like and between touching them and hearing you know my son is fair-skinned and very blonde like I was as a kid um, I I feel like I see him but um, I think that would be the biggest joy is just to be in some natural place with um, with my family, with my kids and my husband. Had they encountered the fact that mom does not have her vision? Yes. And I tell you, kids, like they say, are like little sponges and just take everything in and learn so fast. And I am... I'm just amazed at what they know and what they pick up and how they handle things so, so quickly. You know, my daughter, three, but she was doing this at two, telling me, Mommy, there's two steps down, and Mommy, watch out, Um, there's something in your way, and um, at two years old, both of them, you know, knew their colors, and so... They were telling me what color different things of their clothes were. Oh, mommy, here's here's your purple shirt, your favorite color, you know. And so they totally get that mommy can't see well and that, um, you know, they're without me asking or trying to put any extra pressure, they're, you know, telling me what color things are. And they're telling me, you know, to step up or step down. So um, it's it's a really beautiful, remarkable thing. There are sometimes they'll go, oh, look, Mama, and, um, you know, um, want me to see something. But, um, and, you know, for the most part, they really get it. Like, I'll say, oh, I want to see that outfit. And they'll come and they'll take my hand and, you know, put it on them and say, see, don't I look beautiful? (laughs) 
Denise made the same impression on me that I could tell she left on all her clients who told me about her during my time at the Earl Baum Center. She was energizing and she was passionate. She was genuine and positive. She's a role model. Not just for the blind, but for anyone trying to live an adventurous and fulfilling life. My interview with Denise has changed the way I view the world. The way I look at the shapes of buildings downtown or the colors of flowers, sunsets, and blonde hair. The way I see people who band together and make do with what they have. I learned to see the world a little differently from someone who can't see it all. Tour stop number four, a blended world. So I will, um, uh, if you folks can find, uh, find your way back, but I really enjoyed doing it, and I hope that I explained some of the things that we do here. Thank you so much. Yeah, you so it was much. a really nice tour, and a great tour for your first one. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations. Well, then I can, you can tell everybody over there that I did a great job. I will do that. <laughs> the tour was over. I packed up my microphone, removed the clicky pen from behind my ear, and had a pleasant thank you and goodbye conversation with the CEO. So that's it. Back to a sighted world. But what my tour showed me, from the first glimpse into Sharon's life, to seeing myself and Scott, to finding our role model in Denise, was that these two worlds, one with vision and one without, really aren't that different. I think Denise says it best when reflecting on a lesson she teaches all her students. You know, I tell all of my students, no matter who you were, what you were, what you will be, uh, what your profession was, you are now a teacher. Because once you become visually impaired, you are kind of a, a delegate to the world to let them know that being visually impaired is just part of who you are, but not who you are, first of all. And second of all, um, you can directly inform them how to, you know, best interact with you. A lot of people see the cane and feel sorry for someone and think that, you know, how can they possibly do all the stuff that someone with perfect sight can do. And so it isn't usually until a sighted person meets someone who's visually impaired or blind and realize that they can do essentially everything out of, you know, aside from truck driving or brain surgery, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is certainly kind of still a stereotypical thoughts of um, folks who are visually impaired. And so again, that those stereotypes are, are um, being broken through each day by other people enlightening other people that blindness is just something that happened to them and um, that there are ways to do their lives and enjoy their lives just as they had before they became visually impaired.
When I arrived at the Earl Bomb Center, I would have looked at Sharon, Scott, and Denise with fear. I would have feared their unknown world of darkness. But now I know, I was the one who was blind. Blinded by stereotypes, assumptions, and a pity they are tired of getting. It wasn't until those at the Earl Bomb Center shared their stories with me that I realized how close our worlds really are. That I realized the similarities in all of our stories of striving for independence and happiness in our own unique ways. It wasn't until I sat down face to face with Sharon, Scott, and Denise that I realized we all have our struggles, our strengths, our weaknesses. We who are lucky enough to be sighted don't need to fear those who must navigate life without that precious sense we take for granted. We can communicate with them and help each other. That was going to be the end of my piece. It seemed to wrap up all my feelings about experiences at the Earl Bomb Center. But last night, 10 months after I arrived at the Earl Bomb Center, I realized there was something else on my mind. See, I went out camping this past weekend along the California coast. The moon was a soft and gentle sliver, and the sky was clear. And as I looked up towards the constellations as I fell asleep, I thought back to my conversation with Scott. Is there anything that you wish, if you had, if you could, to see completely with full vision again? The stars. The stars at night. I'll never look up at the night sky in quite the same way ever again. This piece was written and produced by Austin Meyer. A special thanks to all those at the Earl Baum Center who shared their stories, including Dan Needham, Sharon Brown, Scott Murray, and Denise Vansel. To check out more information about the Earl Baum Center, visit their website at www.earlbaum.org. And thank you to the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Braden Storytelling Grant, which made this all possible. Thanks for listening. <laughs>